Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, our attention this morning on verses 12 through 42. If you're new to the Bible, we're so happy to have you with us. This is a great place to learn how to read and understand the scriptures. And if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have an ESV, which is the version we use, there are copies available in the lobby. Uh, you can go grab one of those, take it uh, as a gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, you can also feel free, no judgment. Just type in Acts 5 ESV on your mobile device, and you can follow along that way. Last week, we studied the dramatic account of Ananias and Sapphira, two people in the first century church who were immediately and decisively judged by God when they lied about a real estate transaction. So all of us who are in the middle of real estate transactions are a little nervous, making sure we dot all of our I's and cross our T's. Uh, readers of the book of Acts might think that such an occurrence would harm the reputation of the new and budding church, right? Well, what could be worse for church growth than for God to strike a couple church members down? That can't be good PR for the church or for God. But the passage we're about to read shows that apparently that wasn't bad PR at all. Because this passage details more progress for the gospel and for the church. We have another summary statement here. That's what we're beginning with, describing how the kingdom of Christ is rapidly expanding, even in light of what happened in the verses preceding. But with church growth comes a growth in persecution as well. This chapter presents two things that we should expect the church as an organization and Christians individually to experience simultaneously. Two things, encouraging progress, you're about to see that, and increased opposition, you're about to see that as well. Encouraging progress and increased opposition, that is the Christian life and church life in a nutshell. And this chapter will not only show us those two things, but also reveal strikingly how God powerfully works through both of those as his plan to save sinners just keeps marching on. So follow along with me in your Bibles as I read Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. Then I will pray. Acts 5, verse 12. Now, Many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Verse 17, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the part of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night... An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. 
Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But... If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. These are the very words of God. Would you join me as I pray that he would help us understand them Lord, we ask now that 
the meditations of all of our hearts on this passage would be acceptable in your sight. We ask that you would show us again your son, Jesus, and persuade us again to trust him and to give our lives to him. That we would trust him for forgiveness of sins and that we would give our lives to spread this message of the forgiveness of sins through him. Teach us these things. Plant them in our hearts. Empower us to be faithful. As we study this passage, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, immediately following the fear brought on by Ananias and Sapphira's judgment, we get this surprising statement in verse 12. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Again, we may have thought that God was withdrawing his hand of blessing from the church after this surprising episode last week, but that couldn't be further from the truth. God's hand to bless the church had not been withdrawn, quite the opposite. He was reaching down and through the church, restoring the lives of broken people through the hands of the apostles. Verse 16 explains precisely what they were doing. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The blind, the lame, the deaf, the chronically ill, those with severe spiritual and psychological afflictions were brought to the apostles and miraculously healed. In just a moment, we shouldn't miss this, in just a moment, God was doing for those people what nobody else could do for them in a lifetime. We shouldn't miss this either. Notice that the ministry of the apostles has begun to spill outside the walls of Jerusalem. Right here, we're beginning to see the promise of Jesus from chapter 1 taking shape, that beginning in Jerusalem and to the end of the earth, the church would take the gospel. The reputation of the apostles was growing rapidly. Their reputation was also mythologizing. I don't know if you caught that. Look at Luke's note in verse 15 again. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. A myth had developed already that you could get healed just by contact with the shadow of the apostle Peter. Notice Luke doesn't say that it worked. <laughs> But a myth had emerged. That was meant to be a sign of just how popular the apostles were getting among the people of Jerusalem. And they're doing all of this publicly in plain sight, despite the fact that they have been warned not to. Verse 12 says, They were all together in Solomon's portico. It's bad enough they're doing it in public, but here they are in the outer court of the temple in Jerusalem. They set that up as their base of operation right in the middle of Israel's religious and political life. A big shaken fist <laughs> towards the religious leaders of Israel, apparently. We shouldn't miss this though. This is risky behavior, okay? <laughs> risky business. This was bold. If you remember, again, back in chapter 4, they had already been told by the Jewish religious and political leaders to stop preaching the gospel. Stop it. Stop it now. They were threatened, yet here they are doing it anyway. Boldly proclaiming the gospel by the power of God. And look, 
It's working. Would you believe it? It's working. Israelites are getting saved in droves. Verse 14, and more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. More than ever. Multitudes. This was the biggest revival they had yet seen. There were already at least 5,000 in the church in Jerusalem before this point, and now who knows? Luke doesn't have a number for us. Multitudes, more than ever. God blesses the preaching of his gospel. However, it's not an entirely good report. Many in the church were shrinking back. Verse 13. None of the rest, this is the rest of the church members, dared join them, the apostles. But the people, see the contrast, the people, that is the unbelievers in Jerusalem, the crowd in Jerusalem, held the apostles in high esteem. The people from outside the church respected the apostles and weren't afraid to be publicly identified with them, but we have Christians in the church who knew about these earlier threats, and they were intimidated. They didn't want to get in trouble. They were likely afraid of potential persecution, and I wonder, Sovereign Grace Church, as we try to locate ourselves in this text, if the people we would most closely identify with are the Christians who were afraid to suffer for the gospel. I feel it personally. It stuck out to me as I read this. I guessed if I had been there, I would have been right in the middle of verse 13, hiding away. My life is good. It's comfortable. I don't want to make it uncomfortable. The, the foreword to John Piper's book, Risk is Right, includes this diagnosis of me <laughs> and people like me. He writes, we too can retreat into a wilderness of wasted opportunity. We can rest content in casual, convenient, cozy, comfortable Christian lives as we cling to the safety and security this world offers. Do you feel that pull as well? The pull into a low-risk Christianity. God is pulling us in a different direction. A better one. John Stott describes it this way in his excellent book, The Cross of Christ. He says, insistence on security is incompatible with the way of the cross. What daring adventures the incarnation and the atonement were. What a breach of convention and decorum that Almighty God should renounce his privileges in order to take human flesh and bear human sin. Jesus had no security, he writes, except in his Father. So, to follow Jesus is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger, and rejection for his sake. Faithful Christianity is risky, but those risks are right. Whether we face prosperity or persecution, dignity or disgrace, reception or rejection, we are called by God, as the Apostle Paul would later write in 2 Timothy 1.8. He writes, 
Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Or said another way, preach the gospel at all times that's it. (laughs) Preach the gospel at all times, no matter what. We are witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we are witnesses no matter the cost. That is what God invites us to give our lives to in Acts 5. That is what the apostles exhibit. That's the offer to us. Why should we take God up on this risky offer? Three reasons I want to give you from our text. This will be our outline for the rest of our time in this passage. Three reasons we should share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Reason number one, God is unstoppable. God is unstoppable. The religious leaders that are persecuting the church here in Jerusalem were afraid that their political power and position were threatened by the apostles' popularity. These religious leaders had made a nice deal with the Romans that allowed them a measure of control over their religious and political life. But if they couldn't keep these upstart Christians in line, they would be in trouble with the Roman Empire, and nobody wanted to be on the bad side of the Roman Empire in the first century. Bad news bears. So the religious elite respond to all the preaching and healings and the growing popularity. Look at verse 17. Here's what they do. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the part of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. There it is. Jealous to maintain their political and religious power. Filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. That'll stop them, right? so simple. Just put them in prison. They can't do anything from prison. Wrong. At this point, if this episode in Acts were like one of those cheesy courtroom drama shows, the judge would pound his gavel and yell, overruled. God absolutely overrules the high priest and his cronies. And think of this, God could have found a sneakier way to bust them out of prison. Perhaps one of the guards was secretly a Christian or sympathetic to the apostles, or maybe his wife had gotten healed by one of the apostles, so he slips them a key and God gets them out that way. But, but God's not interested in, in taking a sort of uh, circuitous route, much more straightforward approach. He literally has an angelic being bust them out of prison. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. In other words, overruled. God is unstoppable. And if God is behind you, then you are unstoppable. Later on in this passage, one insightful priest makes that very point. Skip skip down to verse 38. Gamaliel is his name, rightfully observes. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
In other words, God is unstoppable. His plan to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to every, every corner of this globe will not be stopped. Not by unrighteous people or unrighteous laws or even by the unjustified murder, torture, and persecution of God's people. There is literally nothing the world can do to stop God from saving sinners. Even killing the Son of God himself couldn't stop him. In fact, that was the very means by which he was saving the world. His gospel mission cannot be stopped. So... We preach the gospel no matter what. Because what we're doing is guaranteed to succeed. It's guaranteed to succeed. may not appear to succeed in the short term. There will be apparent setbacks, apparent setbacks, only apparent setbacks. But, but God will use our gospel ministry to fulfill his unstoppable purposes. Whether we're breathing the free air like we are now, thank God for that. Or whether we're stuck behind bars, which who knows what will come in the future. Whether the winds of culture are blowing with us or against us. Whether we have freedom of speech or freedom of religion or Supreme Court decisions that go our way. God isn't dependent upon any of those things. And his mission won't be stopped. And if we are participating in that mission, then we can't be stopped either. God is unstoppable, so join him. You can't beat him, so join him. Reason number two, why should we embrace suffering for the gospel? Reason number two, because Jesus is Lord. God is unstoppable, and Jesus is Lord. That may not seem like a very novel observation, but when questioned about why he keeps preaching the gospel, that is what Peter says. <laughs> why are you going to keep, why are you preaching the gospel again? Peter says, because Jesus is Lord, not you. If we go back to the angel's words in verse 20, he gives the apostles the instruction to return to the temple and keep preaching. And they immediately obey, even they were, they were just imprisoned for doing this very thing. Look back at verse 20, verse 21, verse 20, the angel speaking, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. This life is more shorthand for the gospel. This life is the eternal life offered by Jesus. Go speak to the people of all the words of this life. And the apostles, verse 21, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, which they had just been imprisoned for doing, and began to teach. These guys can't be stopped, right? Now, the poor religious leaders are all of a sudden thrown into a tizzy. <laughs> Understandably, they assume it's funny. I think Luke intends for this to be comedic. They assume that the apostles were still in prison, so they sent guards to go fetch them. But the report they got back, pretty surprising. Verse 23, we found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, found no one inside. Apparently, the angel let them out through the back. Or he put the guards to sleep, or he shielded their eyes, or we don't know how, 
but he got them out without anybody noticing. Apparently him opening the front doors, nobody took notice of that. And so as they're processing this report, shocked by this report, another messenger runs in with an equally shocking piece of news. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching people. Remember the sequence of events here, okay? The apostles preach the gospel. They're imprisoned for doing that. In the middle of that night, angel breaks them out. They immediately go back to doing what got them in prison in the first place. That's what's just happened. And the men in charge here are not only perplexed, though they are, they're frightened. Verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Another indication of just how much favor the apostles were enjoying in the city. As much as they're being resisted, they're also being embraced. Remember, encouraging progress, increased opposition at the same time. Now notice, too, the apostles go without a fight. They could have refused, and my goodness, this could have been very interesting if they had refused to go with the guards. I wonder what would have happened next. But in a godly show of respect for the authorities, even as they're about to disobey them again, uh, they go to the council where they are questioned. Verse 27. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, verse 28, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That last line is actually very insightful. We don't know if it's a real fear or just hyperbole, but, but he insinuates that by preaching about Jesus' death, the apostles are trying to pin it on them and get them in trouble, which does make some sense. Been, Peter already publicly preached that they unjustly put Jesus to death, and he's about to say it again. Why are you doing this? That's what he's asking, and Peter provides his iconic answer on behalf of the apostles. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. God is the highest authority. He's the highest authority, and when, when the commands and laws of men are in contradiction to God, we obey God, not men. And everybody, I think, likes to read this verse and kind of get on their horse and like, yeah, see, yeah, stick it to the man. When you're facing persecution and suffering, It's not so cavalier. This is a costly obedience. And this isn't a, this isn't a license to obey the government whenever you like. Specifically here, we're talking about preaching the gospel. When the world forbids us or discourages us from preaching the gospel, at that point we must disobey them because 
we answer to a higher authority. God has instructed us to share the gospel with all nations. And so you know what Peter does here? He just goes ahead and preaches the gospel right there. Here's his line of reasoning. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. This is why we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In other words, you killed Jesus and God raised him so he could forgive you for doing that. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Being hung on a tree was a curse, according to the Old Testament. It was revolting and shameful to Israelites. I mean, it was Dying by crucifixion was shameful to the Romans. But being hung on a tree was a terrible thing to an Israelite. Unthinkable that their Messiah would die in that way. And what they missed, and what Peter is holding out to them yet again here, is that Jesus became a curse to take our curse away. He died to relieve, relieve us of the penalty that our sins deserve. But God didn't leave him dead. He had more to do than just die. He was then exalted as ruler. Leader here means pioneer, founder, and savior. The one who delivers from danger, namely the grave danger of sin and wrath. Why did God exalt Jesus Christ after his death? Peter's answer. Not just so that he could get attention on himself, but so that he could give repentance to the very people who killed him. Jesus was exalted to save, not to condemn. John Stott again. He describes it like this. Jesus' resurrection gave him the universal lordship that enabled him both to claim that all authority was now his and to send his church to disciple the nations. That's what's happening right here. He is Lord. And what does he do with his lordship? He saves sinners. And the way he does it now, after his death and resurrection and ascension, he does it by commissioning saved sinners to proclaim his message to other sinners in need of saving. And that means we share the same commission as the apostles, a commission from the everlasting king to preach his gospel of repentance and forgiveness. We must do that, even if a lesser authority tells us not to. We must obey God, not men. We must preach the gospel, no matter what, because Jesus is Lord. Nobody else possesses his authority. There's nobody else you should be worried about answering to. Nobody possesses his authority. Nobody exhibits his grace. 
Nobody else has good news for sinners like he does. Oh, you know this. I'm in a room full of people who have just sung and celebrated this. Nobody has good news for sinners like Jesus Christ. And as we bear witness to his work, we do the very work that his spirit is doing. Peter's last sentence, verse 32. We are witnesses to these things. Oh, and this. And so is the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're co-laboring with God. He indwells those who testify about Jesus Christ. And as we bear witness to his life, death, and resurrection, we participate in the very work that God himself is doing. What a privilege. And as we do, his very power is at our disposal, his spirit. We share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God because Jesus is Lord. Reason number three, final reason. We suffer for the gospel. Suffering is success. God is unstoppable, Jesus is Lord, and suffering is success. Peter's explanation and re-preaching of the gospel in the hearing of these religious leaders does not land well on them. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Nobody likes being disobeyed, okay? Right? right? Nobody likes being disobeyed, especially when that disobedience may bring serious consequences on the ones being disobeyed, which these guys are very worried about, uh, very worried about. However, however, a cool-headed, respected teacher calms them all down. Man, this guy, take a lesson in uh, peacekeeping from Gamaliel, uh, wisely has them put the apostles outside, which was a good idea, put them outside so he can turn the temperature down on this irate council. He tells them the the well-known story of two other upstarts, Theudas and Judas the Galilean. These were other men who claimed to be leading some uprising against Rome and against the religious establishment. He cites them and shows that they were overthrown. An example of what not to do. An example of what will happen to those who do not have God on their side, who do not have the unstoppable God on their side. But then, as mentioned earlier, verse 38 and 39, he tells them that if the apostles are doing God's work, they can't be stopped, right? Look, if these men are truly doing God's work, it is no use resisting them. And his sage advice works. Look at the end of verse 39. There's so many little phrases in this passage because it's such a big passage we could just miss. And they took his advice. (laughs) Reading this like tense. (laughs) Like, what are they going to do? And they took his advice. Oh, okay. God, God's still working here. He providentially frees the apostles to continue their ministry. I mean, as we know later, some of the apostles are going to have to do ministry from prison. That's just the case for some Christians, but not these guys not here right now. He providentially delivers them through the insights of this one priest. However, again, there are these things tucked into these last couple verses that we could miss. They're not just then let Scott free to go about their gospel business. Verse 40, 
And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them again not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This beating was no small matter. If it's the beating that most scholars think it was, it was 39 lashes. No pain meds, no ibuprofen, no antiseptic, a painful, brutal lashing across the back. I mean, if you and I watched this, we would be mortified. But just three words in the text, they beat them. Told them again to stop preaching. And the apostles' response couldn't be more surprising, could it? Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council. Just grateful that they skated out of there? No. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We know the name, the name of Jesus Christ. Why would you thank God for a beating? The apostles rejoiced because they saw their dishonor by the world as an honor bestowed upon them by God. They were receiving the same kind of treatment as their Savior, which meant they were doing precisely what he wanted them to do. Jesus famously promised that those who followed him would walk the same kind of path that he did. Not exactly, and at differing degrees, but that if we followed him, we would walk the same kind of path he did. Don't be surprised, he said. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. It hated me first, he said. The hatred of the world, these apostles sought, the hatred of the world was a sign of the favor of God. That they suffered for the name of Jesus was a sign that they succeeded in being faithful to him. That's why I can say that suffering is success. Suffering as a Christian is success. Look, not all suffering is success, okay? It's not a success to suffer because you sinned, or because you were a jerk, or because you were annoying. Suffering is a success when it is the byproduct of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. If we live like Him, if we live for Him, then we will suffer in some measure like Him. And that is not something to be afraid of. I've quoted this quote from John Newton a number of times, but he says that the hand that was pierced through by the nail on the cross every day adjusts the comforts and crosses that we experience each day. That nail-pierced hand adjusting the comforts and the sufferings that we will face. So it is nothing to be feared of to suffer for Jesus, to be embraced, to be to share in Jesus' suffering is the very thing we signed up for when we said, yes, Lord, I will renounce the world and follow you. We don't have to manufacture suffering. We don't have to go out looking for it. We just have to be faithful witnesses. <laughs> and actually, we shouldn't be afraid of 
opposition for the gospel. If anything, we should be afraid. <laughs> afraid might be the wrong word. We should wonder why it's so absent for us. For it could, not necessarily, but could indicate that we're not being faithful to the Lord. But when we are, when we're faithful witnesses, doing the most important work on the planet, witnessing to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ at times that God deems appropriate, He will honor us by allowing us to feel the dishonor of the world. So we need to walk away from this passage fully convinced that it is indeed a great honor to be dishonored for the name of Jesus Christ. Not for any reason. Before the name of Jesus Christ. It is a great honor bestowed upon us by God to be dishonored because we are faithful to the Lord. So, don't fear suffering. It's intimidating. It's scary to think about. Intimidating to think of what happened to these apostles happening to us, but, but do not fear it. Don't fear being called names. Don't fear marginalization. Don't fear job loss. Don't fear the loss of relationships. Don't fear even imprisonment or death. For God will sustain our faithfulness. We preach the gospel no matter what comes. He lends us his power to remain faithful. And look, on the other side of whatever suffering God has in store for us, there's waiting for us a treasure. Jesus Christ himself, who's worth every sacrifice that he will call you to make here. You will not regret anything you suffer for him on the last day. So, Sovereign Grace Church, may we share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Join me in praying that we would. Lord, we confess that we are tempted to shrink back and to maintain the status quo and not to upset and to hide the light that you have given us to share with the world. We are tempted to do that. And even when we fail to be faithful, you forgive us. I ask you now to give us fresh strength by the power of your spirit to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. For there is a world out there desperately in need of what you have entrusted to us. So empower us again. Send your spirit in a fresh way to empower us to be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ, that we would not fear the consequences, but that we would have a clear eye on the reward, everlasting life with you. We need your help, Lord. We cannot be faithful by ourselves, so please come and help us again, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.